following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, well, um, I was hoping that I'd be up here last week starting the series, but I got a cold. I couldn't even talk last week. So we're going to give it a go this week and uh, see what we can do. I may have to arm wrestle Chris for a week in February because he was planning to start in February. But um, I may have to arm wrestle him for one last week so I can do four weeks in Hebrews. Um, it's a pretty ambitious plan, but I, I feel like most of the time we take, we go so microscopic when we look at the scripture, or a lot of times. Um, our, our, this I feel like Stacy's done a great job of avoiding that, helping us get the big picture. But um, a lot of times when we look at scripture, we, we go down to like one verse and we spend five years there. Obviously, that's hyperbole, but um, like we need to see the forest. And we can't miss the forest because we've we spent so much time looking at the trees. So I'm hoping that's what we can do accomplish here in Hebrews in uh, in four weeks. Um, yeah, we're gonna miss some details, but once we get the big picture, then it's easier for us to come back and uh, and and investigate those and and have then have a framework for understanding what is the author doing, and what is he trying to present, what is he trying to communicate to us through what he has actually written. Um, so I think it'll be helpful. Uh, I've enjoyed the study so far, and um, looking forward to it. I've actually asked Pietro to come up here today and, and read. Um, that'll save my voice a little bit. Uh, I mentioned to Jordan sometime this week that my voice still sounded a little funny, but I thought I could I could I could do it. He he mentioned to me that it probably sounds funny all the time, anyways. Um, so at any rate, the quality may not be affected too much, but the quantity and volume isn't going to be there. So I'm going to have him mic me up, and uh, we get. But it will save me. Uh, Save me a little bit of reading, save my voice if I can have Pietro read um, for us. So we're actually, the first section we're going to tackle here is uh, Hebrews chapter 1 through Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, so Pietro is going to read that for us. Um, so uh, we're going to do that, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll get started. So if you don't mind reading, Pietro, it would be great. Awesome. Thanks, Pietro. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the, the last few minutes we have here together, I pray that you would help us to see your Son that you've spoken in and through whom you have spoken. Help us to see him as our great prophet. And maybe not stop there. Lord, I pray that you would give our hearts a burning desire, not just for information, but for transformation to be like your Son. So lift up Jesus in our eyes today. Um, I pray that you'd help me even to communicate clearly. Uh, what is said here, and may we, may we go uh, with a resolve, a God-given, grace-filled resolve to pursue you to the end. So we thank you for this word. Thank you that you speak to us, that you have spoken to us in your Son, and have given us this final great message uh, to us. So you've revealed yourself, and we rejoice in that. So we thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Alrighty, that was a lot to read, but if nothing else, you got the words of scripture, and uh, that's that's a good start. All right, let me uh, run through real quick a few details here before we get started, before we really jump into the book. Uh, as to uh, who wrote this book, we don't really know, and I'm not really going to spend much time on it, because at the end of the day, we are studying what the text actually says, and we have that. So we don't know who wrote it, but... It doesn't make a lot of difference, and maybe that can be a secondary question that we pursue, but until we've actually studied the book and looked at it and said, okay, I want to understand what this, the whole thing is said and what the, what the author has actually said throughout this book, 
then we're not, we don't really need to worry about that question. So we can come back to that later. Um, I don't think it makes a real material difference as to our understanding of the book if we don't know that you know this guy wrote it or that guy wrote it. So we're going to kind of bypass that one. Um, also, uh, we, we call this a letter. We write this. We, we talk about it as a letter, uh, mostly because we're familiar with, uh, with what Paul has done in his letters to the churches in, in the New Testament. But if you look at this, what, what the author is doing here, it's actually better to see this more as basically a sermon that he has written down because he couldn't present it himself. Um, there's, just, there's, no, there's not the usual salutations, the greetings that you would see in Paul's letter. There's a small little note at the end uh, because he is sending it to people and he sends his greetings. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, there's also this sense of uh, a technical word called a word of exhortation. So that's actually something found in the New Testament and even broader than the New Testament where it's actually a technical word for a speech that is given to an audience. So at the end of the letter, the author says, I've, I've written this word of exhortation to you, um, this brief word of exhortation, which I guess for him, 13 chapters is brief. But um, at the end of the day, he's, he uses that, and, and it's kind of like a technical term for this is my speech uh, that I've given to you. Over in Acts chapter 13, verse 15, Paul and his, command, uh, and his, uh, his friends were, went to Poseidon Antioch, and they, they go into the synagogue, and they say, hey, we want you to preach or bring to us a word of exhortation. And they're basically asking, hey, give us a sermon, if you have one. Um, so he, he obliges. Um, so really what I'm doing is I'm actually just taking the easy route by preaching somebody else's sermon for four weeks. Um, hopefully it'll be beneficial to you. But that's what's happening here. At the very beginning of the book here, the author starts with the, the basic idea that God has spoken. And he indicates this comparison. God has spoken in the past, but it's, it's been kind of a piecemeal. It's been a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, it's not like it was poor communication. I mean, God revealed himself truly uh, in the past when he spoke through the prophets and through the fathers. Uh, but now he's saying, yeah, but I did that in the past. But now I have spoken to you in the Son, in my Son. So there's this, he starts immediately with his comparison of this final revelation, this final complete message that is given to us. This is now. This is what we have in the Son. It's interesting because if you, if you look at this, you see that the Son is the message as well as the medium. So Jesus has communicated not only, he sent his Son as the one who communicates to us, but even his very life, his very person is, is part of that message to us. Now, the author gives a brief thesis and then jumps right into what he wants to talk about. He gives seven statements about who this son is. Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the one through whom the universe was made. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's being. He's the sustainer of all things by his powerful word. He has provided purification for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of God. He doesn't really develop these thoughts too much right here. He's going to just give this to us. This is the person that we're talking about. This is the son that I want to tell you about. And he picks it up right there with, he sat down at the right hand of God. And he's going to start into his big uh, exposition of who this person is, uh, starting from the fact that he has sat down at the right hand of God. Uh, interestingly enough, we know that he's talking about Jesus. But if you look through this, <clears throat> I don't know if you noticed as we were reading it, he actually doesn't mention Jesus's name until we get to chapter 2. Uh, he's wanting to focus on Jesus, the Son of God. 
And he wants us to, in this first chapter, think of Jesus is the Son of God. Um, so he's going to refer to him as the Son and not yet as Jesus. So we're talking about a pretty significant person. We're talking about the one who created all things, the one who's sitting at the very right hand of God the Father. So at the end of the day, he's going to start comparing this person to angels. And for us, we're sitting here thinking, okay, well, you just made this complete crazy jump. Why were we talking about the Son of God, and now we're talking about Jesus? Well, here's, here's what we, we've got to get the big picture of what's going on. God has he's just said, I spoke to you in my Son. <clears throat> and what he's going to do, the reason angels are important, is that there's this strong belief from the Jews that angels were in attendance when, when the law was given on Mount Sinai. Um, if you look in, in Galatians 3.19, Paul can say that the law was given through angels. He's making a different point, but it's a side comment. The law came through angels. Angels were there. Um, Stephen, the church's first martyr, um, in his epically long sermon, he can say, you guys have spurned the law, even though it was given through angels. There's, there's some hints in Deuteronomy that... Um, angels were there, but there's also more extra-biblical information that, that talk about angels, and, and that was a very significant thing for the Jews. Basically, everything that they were, everything that their nation was, their religion, um, all of that was seen as one big whole, and all of that came together at Sinai, significant point for them, and angels were there. <clears throat> so God is, God is saying, hey, I spoke to you at Sinai. I spoke to you. I revealed myself to you. I used prophets there. Angels were there. But on the other hand, you know, now I've spoken to you in someone who has a greater name than angels. So for us, like, I think we, we just need to step uh, for a minute into their shoes and appreciate the significance of that for them. Like, for us, eh, it doesn't really do, maybe it doesn't do that big a deal. Like, it's not that, that significant. But for them, this is a huge thing. Everything that constituted their life, everything about who they were and what they believed was true and important and right. I mean, their whole worldview had been shaped by this event on Sinai, and angels were there. So the basic idea is that if Jesus is greater than angels, as this author is going to try to point out, then his message is greater than the message that was delivered there on Sinai with the angels. God spoke in the past, one such instance was Sinai. But now he's spoken in a greater, more complete word. And in another word, another way to say it, he doesn't actually use this word here, interestingly enough, but he's using the idea of that Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is better than these angels. He's a better prophet. So here's how this author is going to make his point. He's going to go to the Old Testament passages that he quotes throughout the book, and he's basically going to preach Christ to these people. He's going to say that these Old Testament passages pointed us to Christ and said that the, we, we saw this coming, or this is how the, the Old Testament anticipated Jesus coming and being our better prophet. So he's going to go through Psalm 2, Second uh, Samuel 7, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 104, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, and then uh, conclude it with Psalm 110. So what we actually have in this chapter, chapter 1, we have three sets of two quotations, and then wraps it up with that last one, uh, Psalm 110, a quote from Psalm 110 as the seventh and final statement that he quotes from the Old Testament to show that the Son of God is better than angels. 
The first quote is there in the psalm, is from chapter, or psalm, psalm, psalm 2, excuse me. It says, he asked the question, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, this is an interesting quote. Uh, we'll, we'll cover this as we keep going through the book of Hebrews. But this is a major marker that the author uses in the book of Hebrews to indicate his, his major pieces. Major piece one is Jesus is better than the angels. He's a better prophet. And he quotes the Psalm 2. And in chapter 5, he's going to quote from the same Psalm again and then couple with one other quote, a different verse from Psalm 110 to make his second main point. So if you get... If you're, look, if you're looking for a big picture, get this. Jesus, Son of God, is better than the angels. It's first movement. And then the second movement in Hebrews is going to be Jesus as our great high priest. And he's going to explain that. We're going to take two weeks to talk about Jesus uh, as our great high priest, and then we'll wrap up with the end. But that's, those are our major movements. And Psalm 2 is one of our markers to say, hey, we're going to start this. We're going to talk about who this person is. Okay, now this language, you are my son, today I've begotten you, is a little bit weird. Like, we don't really understand this either. Uh, just just for fun this week, <laughs> we were feeding the boys, and they were sitting sitting down. And I said to my son, you are my son. I, I think I was saying to Breck. I was like, Breck, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. I didn't really do anything for him. I mean, <laughs> I just thought, hey, maybe I'll try this, see what happens. Um, Jaron looked at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, so I, we get, we get kind of tripped up on this language. Um, Thinking that, you know, there's there's the idea that that the God is somehow begetting or you know giving birth to a son. Um, this is really just regal language that was used in the Old Testament in that time period to indicate the uh, the the establishment of an heir. So in Psalm two, we have um, we have we have this quote uh, in in Psalm chapter two we have. Uh, the psalmist speaking of the nations rebelling against God. God in the first half of Psalm two, the nations are rebelling against God. They're they're laughing at him. They're mocking him. They're saying we're not going to do what you want to do. And then in the second half, God responds by basically laughing at him, at laughing at those enemies, those who are in rebellion against him, and saying I'm going to set up my king, my anointed one, on the throne. And he is going to be the one that will wipe out my enemies, wipe you all out. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's why God laughs, because God knows he's got a plan. He's going he's gonna to take care of things. He's going, his son will, be, uh, not, will not be thwarted. One of the things that he, what this does in this sentence is it, it, it's God saying, I am giving my support, my authority, and my sponsorship to this person. So when he does that, obviously, if God is doing that to the one, to the anointed one that he's putting on the throne, then that person is invincible. He's not going to be stopped. So that's what's happening in Psalm 2 that, and you being used here. It's God saying to his anointed one, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Not in the sense that, hey, I just had you as a child, but I am fully behind you as my sponsor and I'm putting you on the air, on the throne as my heir. One of the uh, emperors in Rome about that same time was recorded as saying something almost identical to this. Um, in other words, what this Roman emperor was saying is not, I just had a child and, you know, I'm, you're, you're my son. He's saying, no, you're, you're probably a 30-year-old or something like that. 
you're my son, you're my heir. I'm going to put you on the throne. So let's connect this a little bit. Jesus sat down in verse 4, Jesus, or, uh, 3. Uh, yeah, verse 3. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God because of what he, he has done. And now the, the author in chapter 1 here is taking these quotes to talk about what has happened now that Jesus has been exalted to the throne and is sitting at the right hand of God. So God says, you're my son, you're the heir. You're going to sit on the throne and you'll be unstoppable. The next quote is, in, is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, originally it was spoken to David. God had promised David that one of his, his sons would sit on the throne, reign forever and ever. Um, and God had promised that there would be a special relationship between God and this son of David. And so this quote is basically saying, you know, I'm going to be to him a father and he'll be the son. There's going to be this special relationship between David, your son, and uh, the, the one who's going to sit on the throne and myself. And so what we're seeing in this passage is that person is the anointed one, Jesus. And he has this special relationship with God the Father. So going back to one of our questions here is, you know, God never said this to the angels, but he said this to the son. Clearly, the son is a better person, more significant person, because of this close relationship that he has to the father. Okay, the next two quotes here that we have in verses 6 and verses 7 are from Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 104. And they're showing, again, in contrast to the special relationship that the son has with the father, the angels are simply servants, and they're, just, they're commanded to serve this and worship this son. Uh, the last two quotes in the chapter, or sorry, the, the, it, from verses, um, verses 8 and through 12, these next two sections from Psalm 45 and Psalm 102 speak of the eternal nature of the Son's rule and his reign over the cosmos. Again, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's the heir. God's placed him there. Um, he's going to reign. He's going to rule forever. That's not going to change. Even though that the worlds may dissolve, he's going to be there. The, the angels um, are not eternal as in the sense of like not having begun, been eternal, eternally preexistent. Jesus is, but he's now he's sitting. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. Even though everything changes, he's going to be there. Um, obviously, clearly, that's, this person is greater than the angels as well. So our final quotation uh, in this chapter is Psalm 110. It caps things off. Um, again, it's seven. It had seven statements about who this person was at the very beginning. Seven quotes from the scripture. Just that's a significant number for the uh, for the Jews. Uh, it's just a number of perfection. Um, <coughs> so we're wrapping this up, saying that this is what God has said to this heir, this one who's sitting on the right hand of God. Hey, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. In other words, it hasn't been accomplished yet. Like, there is still enemies out there that need to be conquered. But Jesus, because of what he has done, because he's sitting at the right hand of God, is going to sit there, and God is going to work things out. And we're looking toward the end when he completes that. He's begun that process, but he hasn't finished it yet. There's still yet enemies to be brought under his feet into subjection. So clearly, we have Jesus, we have the Son of God, who's better than angels in this context. Now, here's where he's going. I don't think he was sharing this information because these people probably didn't know this. 
I actually think that these people were probably sitting through this whole lecture saying, amen, amen, yes, yes, that's true. This is what we believe about Jesus. But this is where he's getting to. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, therefore we must pay the most closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away for it. Okay, so all of chapter, <clears throat> first section in chapter 1 is, is culminated right here in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. God's saying, hey, we, this author is saying, we've got to pay attention because if angels attending, attended a great message, God revealed himself on Sinai, that was an amazing event. But we've got, we've got the Son of God here sitting on the right hand of God. This guy, God has spoken through this person. We better pay attention to this guy. That's his whole point. I mean, he, then he compares it even to Sinai. Hey, if, if even that which was brought about at Sinai, where every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, that was damnable to violate that law. How much more when you have Jesus, when you have the Son of God sitting at the right hand of God who's spoken to us, if we neglect that message, we are just that much more condemned. We cannot drift away from this message. And this is the beginning of his, how he's shaping his, his, uh, his message, his overall theme. Like, what does he want his people to do? How does he want them to respond? This is the first of that. Pay close attention. Don't drift away from this. There's no escape. So that's the first section. Uh, we don't want to miss that he's told us well, all that he's told us about the reigning sun, um, we've got we've to hold fast to this truth. We've got to know that this is true and hang on to it. I'm going to wrap things up at the end when we, when we finish, but uh, the author is going to put this in the middle of his, what he's trying to explain. And as he's preaching Christ to them, he's telling them in the middle, he's, he'll pause and stop and tell them, hey, this is how you need to respond. And it's just going to get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger towards the end of the book because he wants these people to not drift away from, from Jesus, this great prophet. Okay, so now we're going to go into section two here in chapter four, starting, or chapter two, starting with verse uh, five. But the author picks up his train of thought with angels. Um, he picks up the idea of subjection because in chapter 1, he said, to which of the angels he's ever said, uh, verse 13, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. And then there in, uh, chapter, in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So he's, this, this idea of subjection is he's continuing his thought, his train of thought. Now, one of the things we've got to understand about what he's doing here is we thought, okay, he's talking about angels and Jesus, and now he's talking about something else. Um, now he starts talking about humanity and people and anthropology. Um, so this is why he's turning to Psalm chapter 8. This is a quotation from Psalm 8. He's going to quote the psalm and then basically explain it, or part of it. Here, the psalmist refers to mankind in the singular, in the original, but clearly he's speaking of humanity, humanity as a whole. The psalmist starts off by saying, God, how can you can even consider human beings um, or care for them, for us, when we are so small and insignificant? 
But uh, again, this goes back to our study that we did with Pastor Stacy in, uh, in Genesis. We know that this is exactly what God has done. God has taken mankind, who is insignificant in, compared to God, but has placed him at the pinnacle of creation and has put him in a position where we rule in God's place over his creation. So in other words, from the original point of view, the author is saying, you've taken man and made him a little bit lower than the angels, um, but you've crowned him with glory and honor because you've put him in this exalted position. Um, so you've placed mankind just a little lower than the angels in the creation hierarchy, but you've crowned humanity, again, with glory and honor, and have placed all things in subjection under his feet. Again, we get that idea of, of things that are being subjected under his feet. And then the author says, but we don't quite see this yet. Okay, this is the position that humanity was supposed to occupy, but we don't see that yet. We don't see all things under the feet of, this, of, the, of humanity. We don't see that. But what we do see is we see Jesus. So one of the things that is happening here is we're seeing that mankind is, not, is in this position. Mankind, this was what mankind's original plan, this is the original plan for mankind. We don't see that accomplished yet, but we do see Jesus. We're bringing Jesus into this quotation because chapter 2 here is all about Jesus in his incarnation. It's Jesus identifying with us as human beings. So we're saying, so the author says, we don't see this happening yet. We will. But for now, we see Jesus, the one who has been crowned with glory and honor because he tasted death for us. So he is the one, the perfect man, the one who identified with us in our humanity, who is going to fulfill this chapter, this verse from Psalm 8. So Jesus, or rather, humanity is not in this exalted position, but Jesus, in his humanity, has tasted death for us and now is exalted into this place as the one who will represent and, and, and points us toward what we will be in the future in our humanity. Does that make sense? So Jesus is taking the place of humanity, dying the death that we deserved, having now being, been exalted to the right hand of God. He's crowned with glory and, and honor, and he is the, the foretaste of where we're going in the future if we follow this person. So through Jesus, this psalm, Psalm 8, can be fulfilled and will be fulfilled for those of us who trust in Jesus as we are united with him. So really, what we're seeing in, this, in chapter 2 here is all about Jesus identifying with us in our humanity. In the first chapter, we have Jesus, we, the Son of God the one in a special relationship to the Father. He's greater than the angels. In the second chapter, we, we have Jesus. He's the Son of Man. He's identifying well with us in our humanity. But here's what the author is going to have to do now. He's going to say, wait a minute. Okay, I'm trying to explain to you that Jesus is better, the Son, this person, is better than angels. But how could that be if he took on humanity? So that's what he's going to have to... That's what he what he's trying to explain here. He's trying to say that Jesus took on humanity, but he's still greater than angels because of what he has done in that humanity. He fully identified with us. Yes, so for maybe a little time, he's been made less than angels. But he's now, because of what he did, he's crowned with glory and honor. He's exalted at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting there at the right hand of the Father. And that means that he's still greater than the angels. Okay, so the end of chapter 2, last couple sections here in chapter 2, 
I know, again, we're moving really fast. Um, but Jesus is better than the angels in spite of the fact that he took on this humanity. Um, and then the rest of the chapter, uh, we're actually spent with the author teasing out three basic ideas or implications of his humanity. And again, he's still trying through that, demonstrating he's better than angels. First, Jesus is our, in his humanity, is our trailblazer. Uh, verses, this is verses 10 through 13. He's referred to as the founder, the, per, the author of our salvation. Some translations have pioneer. Uh, again, he's the one who is bringing many sons to glory with him, but he's the one who went through that first. Um, and this was all possible because of his humanity. He identified fully with us. Secondly, this, the next section would be verses 14 through 16. Jesus, in his humanity, is our liberator. Because he experienced death for us, he's able to set us free from the fear of death. Destroy death, the devil. Third, Jesus, in his humanity, is qualified to be our high priest. Because he was made like his brother in every respect, he's a merciful and faithful high priest for his people. And we're going to study more about that in the, in the next few weeks and the next sections. But just think about this. Jesus is our older brother. He fully identified with us in our humanity. It's not like he doesn't understand. I mean, what Caleb was saying um, before he prayed, there are people that have sinned this week. There are sins that are weighing on their mind. There are, there are, there are challenges, uh, difficulties, things that you, that you had nothing to do with and they, they've entered into your life. Jesus is our older brother. He fully identified with these things. It doesn't, it's not like Jesus doesn't know that. It's not like he can't understand. He's our great high priest. He's our older brother. He did for us what we could never do by taking death for us. You see that? Jesus is our great older brother. We can rejoice in that. And at the end of the day, the author's point is still that Jesus is, is greater than angels. Um, so that's how he's going to wrap up chapter 1 and chapter 2. Jesus is, is a greater prophet. He's a greater, his message is greater. Because he's the son of God in chapter 1, because he's the son of man in chapter 2. So what the author's going to do in the last section here, it, stretching from... Chapter 3, verse 1, through the section we read in chapter 4, verse 13, is he's going to give a, a, a conclusion, like a, an exhort, exhortation to these people in, to wrap this thing up. He's going to give five exhortations, five commands, so like, hey, do this. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's, God's house. Now, I mean, we read that and we say, okay, consider Jesus, okay, um, okay. I thought we were talking about Jesus. But this is not just like a, okay, think about Jesus for a second. It's like really focus your attention on him and think about who this person is. Think about how important this guy is. He sat down at the right hand of God. He's been exalted before the Father. Think about who this person is. He was faithful. Um, we get that in verse 7. The Holy Spirit says, Today, here, here the author is quoting from uh, Psalm 95. He's letting Psalm 95 just preach Christ for him. He just use these words here. Today, if you hear the Spirit's voice, don't harden your hearts. What do you, one of the things he's doing here is he's comparing the faithfulness of Moses and Jesus. 
with the unfaithfulness or the, the unbelief, the faithlessness of the wilderness generation. And he's basically telling them, you know, be like Jesus and Moses who were faithful. Don't be like these people who did not believe and did not enter God's rest. They, they missed out on what God was doing. Um, it's interesting, Moses, in this passage, in the passage um, that is mentioned here, Moses is, it's in uh, Numbers, Moses is, is quoted, God says to, about Moses, Moses is like a super prophet. So again, we're, we've got the idea of Jesus speaking to his, or God speaking to his people, and the comparison there, um, Mir- Miriam and Aaron basically contend with Moses and say, hey, God, God's spoken through us too. <laughs> we, we can be prophets too. And God says, all right, let's talk this over. Come on up. Let's talk. We go to the meeting, the tent of meeting. Moses is there and Miriam and Aaron. And God says basically, hey, look, um, you know, a normal prophet is someone who hears my voice and then goes and shares my message. All right, that's, that's what a prophet is. But Moses isn't like that. That's just like a regular prophet. But Moses is a super prophet. Moses is like, he knows me. He, we just talk together. And then he goes and, and, and speaks on my behalf. So in that context, Moses has said, hey, Moses is faithful in all his house. And then you compare it to Jesus. So in the context of Moses, the super prophet, Jesus is an even greater prophet. Jesus was faithful uh, to, to share the message, to, uh, to do what he was commanded to do. Moses was, fa- was faithful. So that's what we have going on here. We've got this contrast between the G- Jesus and Moses who were faithful and these people who were unfaithful um, and missed out. Um, the point was that they, there was an evil, unbelieving heart in them. Uh, ver- verse 12 in chapter 3, take care lest there be in you any un- evil, unbelieving heart. So that brings us in, into the final two exhortations. We have three in chapter 3 and then one in chapter 4, verse 1. And one in uh, chapter four, verse eleven. Those are the last two things that the the author exhorts in this section. Verse: Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And then in verse eleven, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And he concludes again with this word of message, the word of God. I mean, he's been speaking about God speaking to his people, God, the messages that God brings to his people. The word of God here, he says, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we're familiar with that verse. But this is why he's bringing it in here now. Because he's saying, God is able to speak to his people through his word. And at some point, you're going to have to give account for that. So, in verse, uh, chapter, uh, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It's an interesting and ironic way to put these phrases together, but work your tail ends off so that you can enter God's rest. Um, and what he's, what he's indicating and, and sharing with us here in chapter 4 is that God be, in creation began his rest, but it's been an ongoing rest. Imp- implication is it never said, well, God stopped resting and then started working again, and so by implication, his rest is ongoing. It's continual. In other words, there's still the opportunity for us to enter that. But we've got to enter it um, through faith and, and not uh, by 
being like this, this generation in the wilderness who did not have faith, did not enter that rest. Okay, so let's wrap up what we've talked about this morning. Jesus is better than the angels because as a son of God, he's exalted at the right hand of the Father. Because he's, he's the son of man, he's identified with humanity. Because of his suffering, he's, he's crowned with glory and honor. So then the author gives us these, these exhortations, chapter 3 and chapter 4. Don't miss out on it. You enter it in, into this by faith in this. And it's not a sense of, um, in chapter 3 it says, For we share in Christ, that is verse 14, For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's not like this is the author telling us, Okay, you, you just need to come forward, pray a prayer, you're done. You know, go to a campfire at camp during the summer, you're done. You know, you've prayed, you've prayed that, you've stated you believe in Jesus, you're done. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you need to plan on continuing this to the end. So this is what I would challenge us with today. Jesus is a better prophet. Um, that word doesn't really mean a whole lot to us in today. I mean, we don't go around talking about prophets. Um, but that basically means that God has spoken to us. God has spoken to us in his son, Jesus. And this person, if and because he is who he says he is, all that we've seen today, we better listen. We better listen to his voice. And I, I guess I would, I would challenge you with this. What are the voices that you listen to weekly basis, on a daily basis? There are a lot of voices. Maybe we don't go around calling them prophets, but there are a lot of voices we listen to. Jesus had better be the preeminent one because of who he is. So one of, the, one of the things I want to accomplish with this, with this sermon series is just at the beginning of the year, let's take, take a few weeks to refresh, refocus our minds and our thoughts on Jesus. And even set, set a course for the year. Don't drift away, but set a course for the year. What would it take for this year to be a year of not drifting away, pursuing Jesus, recommitting to that? Again, not by, not by your own strength because you can't do it. You're going to fail. We're all going to fall on our faces, but we have this great high priest, the one who's interceding for us, and we're going to learn more about that, but Jesus is, is God's message to us. We better listen to it. I, I think we should be very seriously thinking of what are the voices in our, in our lives that we're listening to, and I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this, but I'm going to tell you, um, I think one of the voices that we have that we listen to is media, um, whether it's TV, online stuff, whatever. Hear, hear, hear me what I'm saying. I'm not saying this passage says don't listen to the TV, don't, you know, don't listen to music. What I'm saying is Jesus is a prophet. He's speaking to us. God has revealed his very self to us. We had better pay attention to that message. And if it means turning the TV off and not getting online, then you better do it. It's that serious. Take it seriously. I think we need to consider what is it going to take for us to hold fast this year. Where are the temptations for us to, to drift away? Where are the areas of, of temptation and sin, maybe, that would cause us to walk away from this all? At the end of the day, we want to pursue Jesus all year. I, I don't have anything for you to do. Like, go home and, you know, pray, five, pray for five minutes, you know, and that's it. 
But we got to be, we're in this for the long haul. I mean, I appreciate even Jordan sharing some of what he shared about last week. Like, this is a continued long obedience in one direction. So I would challenge you to think about it. Plan for this. Plan to do, make some changes in your lifestyle for being able to seek after Jesus, to pursue him all year. Finally, there's an exhortation here in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 13. The author says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The sin is going to keep us from pursuing Jesus if we let it. So I guess my final exhortation is plan, make plans to be in a, in a group with other brothers and sisters. Maybe it's official cornerstone life group thing. Maybe it's not. But you've got to be involved um, regularly, intentionally, purposely, meeting with another brother and sister or a couple and sharing, confessing your sin, sharing your faults, praying for one another because you're not going to make it otherwise. If you live all, all by yourself, try to do this Christian life on your own, you're not going to make it. You're not going to pursue Jesus the way you should. You need your brothers and sisters. That's one of the gifts he's given to us. So we've got to take this seriously. We also need to finish. Um, but I'm looking forward to next week. And we'll tell you some more about our great high priest. So let's thank the Lord and finish. Jesus, you are great. You're the son of God. But you're also the son of man. You're fully identified with us in our humanity. And we thank you for that. One of the things we're going to just rejoice over in the next few weeks is knowing that this very person who's sitting at this, the right hand of God, if he is there in heaven as our great high priest interceding for us, if we cannot fail, if we continue to follow you and pursue you. God, let, let us not drift away. Let us see the value of the message that you've given to this great prophet. May we cling to it as our only lifeline. And may this be a year of knowing you better. Um, not because we're great, not so that at the end of the year we can just pat ourselves on the back and feel good about ourselves, but we can rejoice and feel good about you. <laughs> we can rejoice in you because you've sustained us. We look forward to that. Please accomplish this in our hearts. Amen.